Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, hello. Welcome back, I guess, mainly to me. I was on Cape Cod for the last week or so, and so here I am now. We're going to do the news. I'm very excited. Uh, I've got wonderful panelists with me today. Let me tell you who's... Well, let me tell you what we're going to do first. We're going to, A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about The Goldfinch. The Goldfinch as a novel, back in, I think, 2014, was kind of a divisive choice when it won the Pulitzer Prize. The movie as I pointed out before, is actually less divisive. You could say that anyway. There aren't so many people having fights about the goldfish, goldfinch, whether it is. The goldfish is an entire different thing. <laughs> so um, we'll be talking about that movie, which we all went to go see. Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, Bill Maher uh, and James Corden and an instance of uh, Bill Maher being a jerk, which seems to me like, you know, dog bites man, but uh, but also, well, anyway, we'll come to that. It involves fat shaming and stuff like that. So, uh, But the, the first thing that we're going to talk about is uh, some new words that are approved by uh, Merriam-Webster.com, especially the term dad joke. But before we do this, see, we pick the panel first and then we decide what we're going to talk about. So we're going to talk about dad jokes. We have no dads here. In fact, we have no men here other than me. Uh, Tanisha Dugan is a producing associate at TheaterWorks. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer, and founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, and Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. So uh, great panel. Uh, and uh, let's set this up a little bit. So yeah, every uh, so often, we- Merriam-Webster will put out these announcements about these tranches of words that they're going to include uh, as lookupable on their website. And so they did that uh, last week. Deep State made it. Vacay, a shortening of vacation, made it. Uh, also, sesh, shortening of session has made it. Uh, a lot of those kinds of things. It's so great that people are, you know, um, surveying people's conversation to find those words. Right. I love it. Uh, so I just got back from my vacay. Uh, solopreneur, a word I've never heard of. Did you have a makeout sesh on your vacay? <laughs> that is my business. Um, and pain, pain point, a persistent or recurring problem as with product or service that frequently inconveniences or annoys customers. Haircut in the sense of a reduction in the value of an asset. Something took a haircut or got a haircut. Okay. So these are new words. I don't know if there's any of them that you guys want to talk about. But we do have to talk about dad joke. And so – because I don't particularly want to talk to Carolyn about this topic. Um, <laughs> Should I just tune out? Like, no, stuff. but I just know where – I know so much of where you're going and, and, <laughs> and how much of it has to do with me. Uh, and so I'm feeling a little protective of myself. So I'm going to start with Irene. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> so we have to decide, first of all, what we think the word dad, phrase well, dad joke right, means. Right, right, right. That's the first – definitely the one. first. Do they, does Merriam-Webster define it or should we just do our own? Well, I mean yes and yes. Um, so um, I'll look up the definition that they have here. But, but I think we have to – a wholesome joke of the type – said to be told by fathers with a punchline that is often an obvious or predictable pun or play on words. And, you, <laughs> and I'm sort of just thinking about Carolyn while I'm reading this uh, on words. And usually judged to be endearingly corny or unfunny. 
Judged is a good word. <laughs> Judged is a and good word. And endearing is also good. Yeah. And the reason that I have all this pain, so Carolyn and I have this, I often say that Carolyn is sort of the daughter that I didn't get to have. Uh, but many things that I do, possibly because of that dynamic, strike Carolyn as things that should be preceded by the adjective dad. Uh, <laughs> dancing. <laughs> dancing is one of them. Whenever so, you're in an event and there's dancing, he breaks out into these like dad moves, which I'm imitating right now. I don't particularly do that dad move that you're imitating. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Just like he dad... doesn't think he's telling a dad right. joke. Is turn, there a relationship between right <laughs> a dad move and a dad joke? Uh, you know, there kind of is because I think it's the dad thinks it's funnier than everybody else does. Is that part of it? No, I the don't. dad is not self-aware that it's awkward or groan-worthy. Yeah, so Tanisha yeah. is gesticulating affirmatively. Well, I was, I was, I was agreeing, <laughs> and also wondering: Do they know? Is there an irony to a dad joke? Are the best dad jokes the one where the dad is in on the fact that the joke is bad, or is it a dad joke when they have no clue and they are delivering it with a hundred percent earnestness? It's and only a dad joke when they are a hundred percent earnestly delivering it, expecting that it is going to have it's going to land real well with the crowd they're directing it at. Right. Otherwise, it's just a decent joke. Right. Or a bad joke. No, they're or usually like, they're like grown worthy. Like they're the kind of thing you laugh at for the same reason that you like awkwardly laugh at a funeral or something. Here's a good it's, dad joke. Yeah. I yeah. just read about a scarecrow that was given a commendation award the other day. Apparently, it was outstanding in its field. That's, grown, that sounds grown, like a dad grown, joke. Grown. I, so I, I have another thought about dad jokes, which is that for the most part, they're not joke jokes. In other words, they're not a joke that you learn and then you tell to somebody else. They are things that dads say more or less spontaneously, which the dads do think are funny and which the dads think kind of liven up the moment, right? Dads, I think implicit in the idea of the dad joke is the dad thinking that he's the life of the party, which, <laughs> which is also a phrase that people don't use anymore, but the dad doesn't know that. The dad doesn't – I think the dad is missing a whole series of changes in humor. I think people are funny – these days more often uh, while they're texting or tweeting or be doing stuff online than they are just orally funny. But the dad is still trying to, to keep the oral tradition going where he's like going to just say funny stuff, right? I'm I think – I'm thinking my dad – my dad – did do a lot, have a lot of dad jokes. Did he? Even though, yeah, yeah. even though. Were they Greek he, dad jokes? Well, I, yeah, I was going to say, he wasn't like, we always saw him as like, he's not like the regular dads, like he never barbecued or anything like that. But now, if you put it that way, I think he actually did have a lot of, like, yeah. Could he, you be specific? Well, I, the first thing that comes into my mind is he used to call, he, he thought the word kiddo was hilarious. Yeah. And he would say like, kiddos, like, okay, kiddos, we're going to go. It, that doesn't sound very funny, I know, but he thought it was well, hilarious. Well, that may make it a dad joke. The fact that he used the word kiddo in his accent, yeah. he thought was really, really funny. So I for what it's worth, it's not a very good joke. It feels like dad jokes, too, are like repeated, right? Like whether they land or not, dads oh, yeah. reuse the joke over and over so that mm. it's like one of those yes. things on Thanksgiving where he's about to launch in it and you're like, I know the end. Right. I believe the producers around here could probably come up with some examples of me doing that. Like there's a joke I always tell about a certain thing. I, I am not aware enough of this to do it to, to say, but I bet you Betsy Kaplan or Jonathan could come up with something, some examples of that or possibly Wolfie. I will say – so we were – I was at the Cape and we were standing on the beach 
uh, my, me and my significant other and we're – she's mentioning how many – maybe I'm mentioning how many gulls there are. There's seagulls flying all over the place. And she goes, also a lot of turns. And I said, yeah, but sometimes they go straight. Um, OK. So you just laugh. Well, you laugh. That's laughed. a dad yeah. joke. So, and that's a dad <laughs> joke. There's no question that that's a dad joke. Carolyn did not laugh at that joke. So there's no question. That is a dad joke. I mean, I'm not telling it in my capacity as a dad, but, it, but I recognize that as a dad joke. But I would say, you know, I would rather be with somebody who said a little funny thing about some stuff the birds were doing than some boring ass person who just <laughs> stood there and, you know, didn't say anything, right? Or, but I yeah, I'm with you 100. percent And we're mm-hmm. sitting next to a comedian, and I'm curious if she, not a dad, could craft a dad joke. Like, <laughs> do dad jokes need to be crafted by someone who has sired a child? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I was just sitting here wondering if, like, you know, those popsicles that have the jokes on them. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Do you think like they hired? Dads to write those? <laughs> they I should. think they do. They should. Or is that just like where dad jokes go to die? Is that like the dad joke graveyard? <laughs> or to, or to right. pass on to sons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cryogenically frozen dad joke. Um, all right. Well, I don't know if there's anything other to say. I, like I feel – first of all, we should say the name Jim Chapdelaine. He should be yes. on this show. And yes. I say not pejoratively at all, obviously, given my situation. The gym is like sort of in the dad joke hall of fame somewhere. I mean, particularly among our panelists. Yeah. But but most of the dads who are panelists here tell are dad guilty. jokes. I am sure our listeners have heard a dad joke or two in their time with us on the nose right. <laughs> coming from those said dads. Yeah. Yeah. We had a debate before we went on the show about whether Rich Holland, who's on the show regularly, is sort of too cool and stylish to tell dad jokes. I think we all agreed that he's not. He's not. Uh, no. Too Sorry, cool and stylish. <laughs> that he probably does tell dad He's jokes. just a well-dressed dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> so See that? Yeah, that wasn't a dad. Can I just say something about <laughs> mom jokes? Because yeah. joke there's mom are jokes. There, are there mom jokes? Though? I feel like I make a lot of mom jokes. Mom's jokes are the kind of jokes that the mother says and then the kid just gets really embarrassed. And, you know, and so it feels like, good. You, you guys are looking of, at me you like. Have an example of that? I feel like mom jokes aren't quite a thing. Because moms yeah. tend to not think they're funny. See, dads think inappropriately that they're funny. Yeah, moms tend to not think of themselves as real cards. I guess I think I'm funny, like yeah. as a teacher. So a lot of times when I'm teaching, I'll say something that I think is hilarious and no one laughs. I, th- I think I, jokes yeah. are also at the expense of a thing or a person or a dot, dot, dot. And I think that is like inherently difficult for a mom. Yeah, right? I feel like most of the things that my mom has that makes her funny is things that we are making fun of her about. Like she's right. the point of the joke, not the one telling it ever. Like in our, in my household, in my experience growing up. Like, yeah, I think like yeah. moms to, are more. Just often, to go back to the uh, beach, I think you know a mom standing there looking at the seagulls and the turns would be just thinking, "How I, beautiful are the seagulls? Oh, how beautiful they are!" Or if they have a little kid with them, is he going to step in the seagull poop? Right. Is he going to try to lick some of it off his fingers? She's like worried about a lot of stuff like that. Mm. She's not trying to think of something funny. Oh, uh, it this. depends on the mom. Come on, you just let Cyrus eat seagull poop as much as he wanted to because he's turned out. No, you could do both. You could do both. <laughs> I, I want to hear a mom I joke. I still try to. Make make no. him laugh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I have to think of one. I can't right. think of one. It's on hard the to spot. do that under pressure. Yeah, I to- I, you have my sympathy. All but right. I think actually, just really quick, I think I make dad jokes. It's more like some moms make dad jokes. They're right. not really mom jokes. I'm tending to agree with you. I mean, there's other mom things. Like there's mom dancing, mom jeans, the, the, the mom, jeans, <laughs> mom dancing, the famous 
uh, Jimmy Fallon. Well, yeah, there's a Michelle Obama and Jimmy Fallon did this whole thing about the history of mom dancing. That's very impressive. Um, Yeah, there's some mom things. I mean, mom jeans, hands down, my favorite because it's all about helping out, covering up the pooch. It's really about (laughs) keeping the pooch in post-baby. So thumbs up on the mom jean and, you know, thumbs up on the dad joke. It's good sometimes. Yes, we go. That's good. <laughs> well, we'll end on that positive note because we're about to go into a n- very negative world. And that is the world presided over by Bill Maher. So we're already in hell basically. Although I don't know. Is anybody here actually sort of a Bill Maher fan? Are you a Bill Maher? No. no. Okay. I am. I was. <laughs> you are? I am. You're a Bill Maher yeah. fan. OK. Not 100 percent. OK. Uh, but I think he's funny. All right, I used well, to love him. Yeah. We need to set up this segment a little bit. So we so we have two clips with which to do this. Uh, we start with Bill Maher uh, from the September 6th episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, uh, which is ex- excerpted on a subsequent James Corden episode. And so here's Bill Maher talking about fatness. Being fat isn't a birth defect. Nobody comes out of the womb needing to buy two seats on the airplane. (laughs) We have gone to this weird place where fat is good. It's pointing out that fat is unhealthy. That's what's bad. Fat shaming doesn't need to end. Needs to make a comeback. (laughs) Some amount of shame is good. Then that occasioned this response from James Corden. It's a much longer soliloquy, which I would actually recommend that you watch because I think it's excellently done. But here's a little bit of James Corden, who, as you probably know, is, you know, he's chubby. Portly. Now, there's a common and insulting misconception that fat people are stupid and lazy, and we're not. Right? We, we get it. We know. We know that being overweight isn't good for us. And I've struggled my entire life trying to manage my weight, and I suck at it. Right? I've had good days and bad months. <laughs> <laughs> I've basically been off and on diets since as long as I can remember, and, well, this is how it's going, (laughs) right? No, but we're not... Here's the thing. We're not all as lucky as Bill Maher, you know? We don't all have a sense of superiority that burns 35,000 calories a day, (laughs) I kid because I love... But he's not really kidding about that. I don't think. <laughs> so I don't know, Tanisha. How do we? How do we, calories? Yeah. How do we start unpacking this? We have to un- unpack the whole question of like, what is Bill Maher, and then we have to also <laughs> un- unpack other Bill questions. Maher? Well, I think it's sort of Salty. a it, it, like I don't know. I wouldn't even <laughs> mind starting there. Because, like, I don't like Bill Maher at all, and I interviewed him once, I think it was, like, in the, maybe in the 90s or something, and he was, like, one of these people who couldn't stand it if anybody else was funny except him, and and I just, and I've never liked him. I have one instance of something I think that was good that I, I will mention. But one of the things that you said was that you thought that he was, that we couldn't really discuss Bill Maher without using the word a-hole, uh, which we used a lot as we were emailing around. <laughs> but you sort of... You, you sort of distinguished between two phases of his a-holery. Yes, yes. There is like the a-hole I appreciated and the a-hole he's now become. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time where, you know, being brutally honest, and I think that's what, it wasn't real, real time. What was, the, what was it? Politically incorrect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like that phrase. I'm a fan of comedians like Dave Chappelle. I don't mind poking at to dig in for a deeper truth. But I think he's now stuck in what he thinks is the truth. And I think it's shaded by 
decades of his privilege that makes it hard to follow him down the path of quote unquote fat shaming. Like I think James hits on all of it, right? Like if you are portly as I am, it's something that you consider all the time. It's something that you are trying to work on all the time. I know a lot of quote unquote skinny fat people, you know, people who present as thin, but who eat worse than I do. So I think Bill has lost his ability to have nuance and he doesn't listen anymore. And so he's not changing his point of view. Uh, He's just sort of burrowing into it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, because he I I admire I like edgy comedy, you know, so to say, you know, like to make fun of something that sort of you're not supposed to make fun of is funny to me. And um, so but that one fat shaming is not very funny to me, though, you know, and so it's like and we always you know, that's always what happens with the joke. It's like it's funny when it's about other people. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I I sort of I admire him for his desire to to be political in an interesting way and to sort of uh, really take on, a, you know, what's going on in the world and all, and all that. But I agree that he doesn't listen enough. And like, first of all, he doesn't really understand the rest of the world. He doesn't have, you know, there and there are. That's a really good point. The way you said it, Tanisha, I think listening. He doesn't he doesn't say, all right, who can tell me how can I listen to somebody and change my mind? He doesn't seem to, you know, he just kind of acts now like he knows everything. I still think he's funny. I I tend to listen to it. I listen to his podcast. I don't watch it, but I, uh, you know, because he, but um, anyway. uh, All right. Uh, Producer Jonathan McPants is setting up several Papoulian through lines, putting out that James Corden has a classic dad bod um, (laughs) and that Fatberg is one of the new Merriam-Webster. What is Fatberg? Fatberg is like when all kinds of disgusting stuff accumulates in a public um, sewer sewer or something like that and like clogs it. And they now call those Fatbergs, these enormous things that you don't even want to think about what's in them. I Um, lived in New York City when – it was like the summer of Fatbergs. Like everything was like overflowing. Which is also it was also a very unsuccessful movie. It was like <laughs> it was Steve Gutenberg's most unsuccessful comedy. Anyway, continue. <laughs> um, all right, so we have to, Caroline. We have to talk because because okay. one of the questions really is, what is Bill Maher? So because I, you know, James, uh, James. So the, uh, Jerry Seinfeld in comedians riding in cars in the Eddie Murphy thing. Mm. One of the things Seinfeld says is what people don't understand about comedians is we think everything's funny. Yes. We think everything is potentially funny. You know, there's nothing that we wouldn't make a joke about. You know, then there's some questions about what people will accept from us. You know, that, which is a separate question. But we think everything is is funny. And you know, if Dave Chappelle did something something like this, first of all, it would have been a lot funnier, and I would have probably laughed at it. But I think Dave Chappelle is a comedian, whereas Bill Maher is this guy who sits behind a desk and sometimes does political commentary and really feels like he has this essentially meaningful take on society that can be taken at face value, which is not how I would see Chappelle, which I think puts a different set of burdens on him. You know, I think when he's talking about fat people and saying that stuff, I'm supposed to assume that he means it. Yeah, I I happily exist without – Bill Maher ever coming into my uh, <laughs> into my universe. I mean, I, I have HBO. I would never willfully put him on. I don't feel like many clips, you know, a lot of time. I don't watch any of the late night shows, but you're aware of what is happening on them because a lot of clips get circulated on the Internet. So, I mean, 
good for him that he's managed to penetrate into a pop culture universe because I feel like we don't you don't hear about him that much because his show does have a very specific audience. Uh, I'm not sure who that is. Um, Irene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. apparently. Irene. But what kind of in the times that I managed to ha- have seen it, it just I don't know what I'm watching. Like, is it? A real serious, like roundtable discussion, or, or you know, he his, his snarky commentary never even feels like it's not. He doesn't have this. His razor sharp wit seems really like pre written to me. Mm-hmm. Like it's like mm-hmm. he sat in a room of writers and like made they all decided what he was going to say when he's going to interject. And I just don't feel like there's any spontaneity to him. And he's a total a hole. <laughs> like everything about him just kind of rubs me the wrong way. His face, his his show, everything. So I just can't wrap my head around him. And there's a. Uh, with a joke like this, with fat shaming, there has to be – for something like that, I think, to land, there has to be kind of this, like, self-deprecating uh, area to it or something I, – I think things are funny when they're personal. Like, James Corden's response, because this is something personal to him, he is able to strike that chord and make it relatable. And, uh, and I mean, because we all fat shame ourselves regardless of body type. I was telling Irene before the show that I fat shamed myself this morning because this morning I got stuck in formal wear. I was trying on a dress. I was trying to figure out what I'm wearing to this, like, upcoming gala. And I put on a dress and I couldn't get the zipper. I couldn't get it off. And I was literally considering cutting myself out of an evening gown this morning to get here to the show. <laughs> that would have been fun. I told her she should have just worn the, worn the gown. So we should just have a camera follow Carol. Carol around. Exactly. <laughs> At least starting in the morning of any nose appearance, and yeah. maybe, maybe for the entire. So week. the There's fat shaming yeah. things that were coming out of my mouth this morning right. were amazing. <laughs> One of the things that I think it was interesting about Corden is to use what should be in Webster's dictionary a takedown, uh, and I agree with Colin that everyone should watch it. Is that he used um, uh, Colbert? And what's John the one? and John Oliver yes. as his like these are the two that are beating us in late night and I thought that was so like wonder wonderfully subversive because I think what Bill Maher is trying to do is be the place he says it all the time this is the place where some people come to get their news and I'm like actually no let's hope people not. don't go to you no. are not Colbert you are not John Oliver you're not doing that work or really trying to do that work. But I think he believes that that's where he lives. That's I, the problem with Bill, Bill Maher believes that he is succeeding. But, and I think it's also, though, a matter of how much you interpret how much he means it or not. Like, I, I don't think, you know, with that whole the whole sort of fat shaming bit that he did. To me, I, I read that as somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but you're saying you think he means... I know, it. I, I Colin's like insecurity some, point... Is some like, amount of shame is yeah. good. So I, I was, co- so I was, I was coming to this. I was watching the Mark clip when he was saying all this. Well, first of all, to your point, and this is something we've said on the show in the past, and uh, Carolyn may have said it, is... If you're going to say something really horrible to be funny, you better be really funny. Yes. You know, you can't yeah. just be kind of funny if you're if you're being horrible. So that's what to say like you don't. You, no one was born having to buy two airplane seats or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's not just, funny. You no, know, that's not that funny. Yeah. It's just kind of cruel. Yeah. I, I do think Bill Maher is insecure, and I think he basically doesn't like himself very much. And I was watching even that clip, and I was thinking, this is a guy who grew up thinking he has a really big nose, which, by the way, he does. He's a big <laughs> honker of a nose, and and he. 
and he doesn't like Which himself. Which is an appropriate topic for the nose. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and he doesn't like himself, and he's not secure about himself. He's the kind – he reminds me a little bit of Bill O'Reilly, who I used to know a little bit. There's a certain kind of person who uh. is constantly telling you how great they are because they don't think – they think the opposite. They are very worried that the ice that they're skating on is going to break and below it is what they really think about themselves. And that lack of confidence can lead to a very funny yes, comic. Right. Uh, if you let yourself live there. Right. And he will not. Yeah, he, right. his, but it, you can see it. And that's what makes it interesting. Right. And that's what I think makes him uncomfortable for me to watch and why I can't accept him as as funny or, or you know, some great – commentary or political analyst or anything because I feel like he just falls short of being comfortable enough with himself to make himself the jokes, which sometimes he should be doing. Or a critic enough of himself. Right. Right. Like to your point of like these jokes aren't that funny. Like you're not critiquing your ability to make people laugh or your ability. I I think he's most successful when he really understands or, or seems to understand a political point of view and is really hammering into that. Yes. That's when I think he's the best. When I he agree. goes into these, you know, personal uh, libertarian sort of yes. ideas of how you should live your life, it's always untrue. And I think it's for all the reasons you guys say. I keep wanting to say ditto to everything you're saying today, Tanisha. <laughs> but also, why is he so popular? You know, what do people like? Everybody it's a, it's a really themselves. good question. Yeah, it's, I, <laughs> it's a really good. I, well, I I think he is okay. So a lot of people are popular. A lot of people could fall into the category of people who are popular because they will say things that other people won't say. You know, and I think mm-hmm. we maybe even increasingly want that kind of thing. I want to give Bill Maher credit for one thing because he actually took quite a bit of heat about it, which was right after 9-11. He did a whole thing about how everybody kept referring to the terrorists as cowards. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, we live in this world where our our power we exert by pushing buttons. We can launch missiles from great distances. And of course, even since then, our ability to kill people using drones has grown grown and become more prolific. Uh, But his point was we often kill people in cowardly ways. The terrorists get on airplanes and die on these airplanes. So, Look you in the eye. Right? Yeah, and so and he, the Bush administration went nuts when he said that. He said, and they're upset. not cowards. And yeah, yeah. and so that took. First of all, he's right about that. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, that took a certain amount of guts to say that. But the fact that I, you know, and he got booted <laughs> off television for it yeah, for a I while. Did, yeah, he paid, paid some big yeah, consequences for it. Ari Fleischer yeah. was, did this whole thing about people should watch what they say. It was the beginning like of cancel culture, right? Mm. Um, but I mean, the, something to be proud of. Mostly, I just don't. So I'll give you the most transgressive example. Okay, so because this bothered a lot of people when we did the Dave, most recent Dave Chappelle dis- discussion, and I heard NPR doing a discussion. So Chappelle in his new special, at one point he he says, "I go, he says, I'm the kind of person who, if you tell me Chris Brown hit Rihanna, I'm like, well, what'd she do? do? <laughs> you know, well, he doesn't mean that. You know, he is he is say- first of all, the audience laughs when he says it because they know he doesn't mean that. He's illustrating a particular kind of mentality that is not his mentality. He knows it's a ridiculous thing to be saying. You know? Well, that's who knows. But that's how I interpret it. I'm not really, I don't believe that Dave Chappelle thinks that way about domestic mm-hmm. abuse. But I do think that Bill Maher <laughs> doesn't like fat people <laughs> and, and thinks that they should lose some weight, you know? And to me, that's kind of the difference right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chappelle, mm-hmm. I think, in that particular joke, represents a lot of people's inner thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure if a lot of people are thinking about external fat shaming. 
You know, right. and mm-hmm. I think that's where Bill Maher misses it. No, and he and he was trying to make a connection to healthcare, which is also just let's. That was a stretch. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I think Carolyn's point about her dress is <laughs> no. Actually, I think it, there's a serious. It was funny, but I think it's an underlying point. It's the same one that Corden makes too, which is whatever you think you're saying to us about being fat. We're saying worse things to ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, like whatever Carolyn called herself this morning. <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> Which I, yeah, don't even want to know. You know, it's it's worse. And that's sort of true. All of us have these inner monologues going on mm-hmm. that are a million times worse than what people want to say to us. Anyway, all right. We have to take a break. We'll be back. All right, we're back. Uh, something weird happened there. Uh, and so uh, we're here with uh, the wonderful nose panelists that we have today. Uh, they are Irene Papoulis, Tanisha, <laughs> Irene Papoulis, Tanisha Dugan, and Carolyn Payne. So we've all been to see the movie The uh, Goldfinch. Now, The Goldfinch was a ex- very successful and somewhat critically acclaimed up to the point of even winning the Pulitzer um, uh, novel in 2014. Uh, it is um, the story of a young man named Theo who kind of begins his story with a visit to the uh, to the Met, where um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where a terrorist bomb goes off and his mother dies. Uh, and I'm not spoiling anything. Uh, and this is like how the whole story starts this way. Uh, he loses everything. He doesn't really have an actively involved father. Uh, it's very Dickensian. He is cast upon his own devices and the charities uh, of others. Uh, And then a whole bunch of other really bad things happen to him. He is dealt a bad hand on virtually every aspect of his life. Um, And one of the things he clings to, oddly enough, is a painting that he, in a sort of trance, walked out of this explosion holding. It's called The Goldfinch. Uh, We don't have a clip to play because we couldn't find one that was playable. Uh, The movie is currently being – becoming famous more as this incredible box office dud than it is for anything else. Uh, It is the sixth worst opening for any movie in saturated release ever. That's more than 2,500 screens uh, and so wider than wide release. Uh, The movies that are – have had worst – uh, openings are, for the most part, movies that you would not remember. Uh, so I won't even read their names. Uh, so I don't know where exactly to begin here uh, other than maybe to go around the room and talk a little bit about how we reacted to this movie. I should say Donna Tartt's novel is 800 pages long uh, and it is a very sort of Dickensian kind of story. And so that means it has a lot of plot but it also means it's going to be kind of hard to adapt. Um, so, so let's start with Carolyn who's – almost never happy with the movies we make her go see. And I've, I became very nervous about her going to see this one. So, And I tried to lower your expectations. <laughs> I mean, my expectations are always like base level low mm-hmm. going into any movie I have to see for this show. Um, <laughs> and that's not meant in a hurtful way at all. No, you know. no. Uh, so I saw this movie last night and... Uh, I was one of two people in the movie theater. The other person left halfway through. (laughs) If that doesn't give you a good review of this movie, I don't know what would. Um, 
All right. So as far as things I've had to see for the nose, this isn't the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not rush to see this movie if, you know, unless you had read this book and you're really here, you know, you could still just like wait because it's literally going to be like free on some sort of platform or your TV, like probably by next week. There are actually plans to pay people small stipends for watching it. <laughs> yeah. And even um, then, like you should probably make sure that alcohol is thrown in for free. It just moves at a snail's pace. Right? Like, it just, it, it was so slow moving. They could have edited this down to, like, 25 minutes or something. <laughs> and it would have, I, I, I would have been slightly happier with it. Or, I think you would said this in an email, Colin, it could have maybe been a better miniseries or, yeah, like. An HBO kind of, you know, eight-part yeah, series. Yeah, where they could have gone into it more, I think. That maybe would have made it better. It would have been better to be – I mean it was over two hours, which is right? – About two and a half hours, yeah. Yeah, that's already past my threshold. But So this could have either been longer like in a series form or shorter as in non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's alternate viewpoints here. So Irene, you are – and you, she's being flown uh, out to the, the Aspen one. Ideas Festival right now by the filmmakers <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, to talk about why you like this movie. Um, yeah, I liked. I actually liked it better than the book, unlike other people who who had the opposite perspective. Right. Irene because, and I both read the book. We should say, yeah. Um, and I I liked the book, but I sort of felt like the book sort of dragged, and I wanted to edit it down. Whereas I didn't feel that way about the movie. Actually, I I liked the pace. Maybe it was the mood I was in. I just love sitting in the Maybe theater. Maybe it's because you survived this. Book this book being so drawn out that this yeah, felt well maybe more concise yeah, to you. Even though the the book wasn't that fresh in my mind, you know, I remembered the opening scene and I remembered the scene with this anyway. But um, but I but I felt like it it distilled the book in a very interesting way. It was a very different kind of um piece than the book because it was. And it was it, – I, I just felt kind of – I couldn't believe all the reviews that said that it was soulless and, you know, and I, I sort of feel like people – reviewers got on the bandwagon because mm-hmm. once something sa- someone says, oh, it's – the emotions are so shallow, it's soulless, it's hard to say that you think the emotions are not shallow because you sort of feel like, well, then maybe my emotions are shallow if I don't – if I thought they were kind of – if I've, I was moved by it then that feels weird if nobody, everyone thought it was like emotionally bankrupt. But I thought it was kind of emotionally interesting. Mm-hmm. And that, that there was, that there was you know, his, anyway, I could say more about it. All right. Well, no, we'll, we'll make sure that you do. But Tanisha, uh, I'm just going to take your temperature on this one. Yeah, I liked, I too, like Carolyn, was uh, the only person in uh, the theater when I watched it, which means for those of you looking for a place for a makeout sesh, this is definitely the film to consider. Um, but I... I'm going to try to like lace in as many dictionary, new dictionary yeah, okay. words as possible. Or just the word, the, the phrase makeout sesh is a good thing to just keep <laughs> folding in. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I thought that... Um, it did have an emotional life, and I thought, you know, watching this boy across his life um, and watching the two actors sort of embody this single story was really fascinating. I I think I loved watching Nicole Kidman, who has been yeah. a part of my cultural um, fabric for my life. And so I've seen her be an ingenue, and so to see her now playing not just a mom but a grandmother was that makeup just, job was amazing. Yeah, for her. So, she yeah. really looked like an older, very older version of herself. And it, it's a relationship play, which or a relationship film, which I think is the mm. thing that I'm always interested in. So, yes, because it's a relationship story, it is 
not as quick paced as some other movies because relationships unfold slowly. And for us to be able to understand them and get inside them, you have to see them and you don't know that the relationship with Boris when you first uh, engage with him and Boris is is a friend of his that he meets uh, after uh, his father sort of comes back into his life uh, that that relationship that's seeded there becomes you know such a central plot point uh, in a more thriller-ish not to overstate but, see, that was way. the problem anything that even was a moment of action it was like in slow-mo <laughs> what was happening it, I, I, it just felt bizarre to me and I wonder if that's because it's not that the movie is not a thriller so to go so they wanted to make sure that you really didn't think it was or to make you I think, I think that, to I make think the choice that, that it's part the of same that. movie you know yeah. that you're watching the same movie that when uh, the story takes a turn we're not all of a sudden wondering where Tom Cruise is, you know? And I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Right, so... Um, I would recommend it. I would yeah. endorse it. That's like two Whoa. endorsements. Go um, out there. So I think part of the message of the movie is delivered by um, J- Jeffrey Wright, uh, who's, as usual, giving a letter-perfect exactly. performance. He's a in, reason to In go. a role that he's not really suited for, at least based on the character in the book. It's not that much like Je- Je- uh, Jeffrey Wright. But he's suited for but it in the movie. He's really good at this movie. And he talks about art. And he talks about how art is meant to endure longer than we do. Mm-hmm. That art is supposed to be there long after we and our petty cares have passed from this world. Objects. Um, as a person who makes art that yeah. only exists yes. for a moment. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I do you want to say about the book? Like what, one of the mysteries to me is why people care about objects. Not like paintings and stuff like that. But I, like I belong to an organization where once a month I'm surrounded by people who are, like really are interested in antique chairs and stuff like that. And I don't get it. I've never gotten it. I think it's the most boring thing in the world. I could not possibly care. Uh, but – and when they're talking, I don't know what they're talking about. But reading Donna Tartt's novel, I kind of got it. She's just – her character so perfectly explained over, yes, 100 pages at least how, what it is to be that kind of aesthete, you know. And I, like I thought, oh, I get it now. I would never do it, but I get it. And And so they try to do that in this movie. I mean – the people who made this movie, it wasn't like they didn't understand the book. They understood the book. It's just very hard to make all of that. That's supposed to be the the beating heart of the movie, I think, is here you are, this damaged Dickensian hero, you know, who meets an artful dodger who happens to be this <laughs> Russian guy who's going to become a criminal, <laughs> you know. And, and what is there to heal you? What can – is there anything that you can put your faith in? Because people are not working out and you have become in fact a very undependable and somewhat sociopathic person yourself. <laughs> so what's still meaningful? Well, m- maybe it's this stuff, this stuff that lives – you know, a, a, a piece of furniture those are hundreds of years, or a painting that enchants people eight hundred after years after it's painted. Yeah, I'm. I, I totally got that, and I didn't read the book. Mm-hmm. That totally came through. I think putting those words in Jeffrey Wright's hands is probably part of why I was able to receive it so much. And it and Chippendale or not, the idea that the chair that I sit in could be sat in by another human being five hundred years from now is magical and amazing. Um, and I, and, I, and I think that's the thing about the, the movie that I did walk away with. I did yeah. walk away with that. I, I, two things that would have fixed the movie, I think, a little bit for me. I think they needed a different lead. Anson Elgort, is that what his name is? Or Ansel. Ansel, Ansel Elgort. He's not the right guy for this role, for this role of Theo. He, he's, a, he's too bland. He doesn't really have that slightly wolf or fox-like instinct for, for, for 
conmanship that that Theo has to have. You know, I think interestingly, uh, he was in another adaptation of a 2014 movie. I think it's The Fault Was in Our Stars or whatever that. It's one of those mm-hmm. YA mm-hmm. things. And I actually, this is the last question I wanted to ask you guys, which is, I'm wondering also if audiences for adaptations of relatively smart literary things are shrinking. We're getting so used to YA stuff, you know, that it's Harry Potter, Hunger Games, all this kind of stuff. I'm just wondering whether people like want to see something like this, whether that's one of the reasons it's bombed so badly. Thoughts? Well, uh, I probably people I, I I don't know I don't want to trash the audiences you know mm. like I kind of feel like people would want to see it but I mean if I think if I had just read the reviews and I hadn't it wasn't going to be on the, the nose I might have said oh, I'm going to skip it because it sounds terrible mm-hmm. you know and I bet a lot of people felt the same way you know and I and I think that's that's kind of tragic tragic because somebody decided that people don't want to see it I think you know people would rather see YA and they'd rather see other things but you know, movies that have emotional resonance uh, about interest. You know, he was looking for love. That was basically his story. Yeah. He was tr- he was he was desperately looking for love, and he had he 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 didn't know how he you know he had very little um, agency as a child about that, and so he was just like you know, and that's an interesting story. And so yeah, I think people do want to see that. They do want complexity, but. It's 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 hard to get it and it's hard to find it. So it's really too bad that this movie is bombing so much. I'm going to trash the audience just because <laughs> I think illiteracy is cool and illiteracy is is trendy. And I think uh, illiteracy yeah, is trendy. I do. I think we live in. I think that's the time that we live in. And so when you tell an audience r- reviews or not that it's based on a Pulitzer Prize winning book, I think we have. Uh, an electorate and an audience that's like, I don't do that. Or, or maybe it's also that to get somebody to get in their car and go out and pay $15 or whatever and have to buy their popcorn and, you know, they want to just be really entertained. They want to be sure they're going to be entertained. And it goes back to that question. Could you do it on HBO or Showtime where people could watch a longer thing and stay home and feel a little bit more in control of their experience? When you go to a movie theater, you're surrendering control. So maybe you don't want to be hit with anything that's going to be too complicated? I don't think it was too complicated. I think that there were problems for me. Like you talk about this being emotional. I had trouble connecting emotionally Mm. to this. Like maybe I'm dead inside or something. But (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I walked out of there with no, uh, you know, no, no tears to shed over anything that was going on here, which was weird to me because, I mean, there is it. I mean, everything on paper about this. And I do actually kind of want to read the book now um, because I, I think I'd probably like the the book better. Um, and and I, I liked the – I did like the elements with art. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought my favorite little like moment in the movie at the end when they show the newspaper article of all the other art that was found, I got so excited because the Rembrandt that they have, it's the little picture, mm. is the one from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum mm. Heist. Right. <laughs> and I loved that there, there was like that little – so for me that was – you know, not only was now the movie over, but also the fact that they included that. Um, so it ended with a thumbs up for me at that moment. All but right. So now our discussion is over. And thumbs up from Irene Papoulis and from Tanisha Dugan. And I don't know, like a sort of a, a flat hand from me and thumbs down from Carolyn. We'll be back with things that were thumbs upping.
All right. Uh, mega thank yous to uh, Jonathan McPants, uh, who pulled this whole show together and produced it. Uh, Wolfie's on the board, making it sound good. Uh, and we're going to endorse some things. Before we do that, uh, there's some goodbyes this week. Rick Ocasek uh, from The Cars, uh, you'll hear him uh, as we end the show. Uh, and then uh, this person, uh, you're going to hear a clip from, one, from her one and only appearance on our show as a guest. Now, I used to have a basset hound named Abner, and Abner liked being on the radio so much that he would go, uh, he would find ways when I would put him far, far away from the microphone, he would still find ways to howl loud enough so that he was on the air. And I would go to, you know, some town covering a story, and I would be in a hotel, and I'd open the local shelter magazine, and there would be a picture of my dog, Abner, (laughs) which would be an ad for the local radio station. And it really ticked me off, Colin, because (laughs) Abner didn't do anything. He just howled. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was the one working, but Abner got all the glory. My producers are texting in the names of their basset hounds. So Betsy Kaplan (laughs) had one named Louie, and Jonathan McNichol had a basset hound named Wilson. So Uh, There um, you go. Were they on the radio? I don't think we've had any of them on the radio. And Abner also could open the refrigerator door and help himself to anything in it, including once a 10-pound ham. (laughs) So uh, he had many talents, none of which were helpful in terms of supporting the family. All right, Cokie Roberts, you will be missed. Uh, time to make some recommendations. Uh, Irene, why don't you get us started? Oh, first of all, just Cokie for saying, were they on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but also, I'm someone that doesn't like to eat in the movies as a rule, and um, like not even popcorn, but I went to the new cinema in West Hartford where mm-hmm. they have food. We were the only ones in the whole theater when we saw... Um, The Goldfinch, thank you. Um, But I was amazed by the seats and also by the food. Like, you know, it was like, it's all just going to be garbage food that I don't want to eat. But I had this like California veggie sandwich that was actually kind of tasty and it wasn't that expensive. It's cheaper than eating dinner in West Hartford. Then there's a little button on every seat that says service and... (laughs) You know, it, you just feel very, and the guy's like, okay, whatever you need, whatever you need, just let me know, you know, since we were the only ones in the theater. But I just feel like, wow, that is a really good way to go to a movie. You know, you can just like come home from work, go to the six o'clock show, sit in a really, there's a little button so you can recline your seat, mm-hmm. another little button that you can press service. Maybe other people already do this all the time, but well, I've never been seats, to a yes. place like that. So that's a, in the new Blueback, the newly remodeled Blueback Blue Square. Uh, Blue yeah. Back Square uh, and they theaters. showed a movie like The Goldfinch. So, so go. I highly recommend. It. All right, Denisha. Uh, I'm endorsing kindness this <laughs> week. It's a muscle, as uh, this kids' song that used to play on whatever kids' channel it was before Universal Kids. Kindness, it's a muscle. And contrary to my earlier point about uh, audiences wanting illiteracy, I actually think audiences want kindness and want to know more and do better. Um, So be kind, especially when you go to a store and you're dealing with someone behind a register. You know, it's a job. Their job is to like and love on you. You can like and love on them back. All right. Uh, We like that endorsement uh, very much. Denisha Dugan, Carolyn Payne, what have you got for us? Um, All right. So I am endorsing Unbelievable on Netflix. I watched it all in one sitting, all eight hours of it. (laughs) And I actually thought I 
was going to be ahead of the curve. I was like, oh, they're definitely going to do this as a nose topic. And now I, I, I already watched it. I'm good to go. And of course, we didn't. We can circle back to it. Uh, I'm sure we'll circle. I, I, I hope we do um, because it deserves it. It is so well done. It is such a product of this like hashtag Me Too movement. Uh, and um, it's based on a true story and a Pulitzer Prize winning article. Uh, read the article. Watch the series. Uh, it is uh, – Tony Collette uh, is in it, and she is just one of my all-time favorites. I think she is an underrated actress of our time. I said that to somebody, and they were like, she's in everything, so she's not underrated. But she is because she's not – we often don't talk about how incredible, and her performance in this is outstanding, as is everyone. Um so watch it. Right. And the uh, girl, the young woman who plays the, the victim, yeah, she, you will you may recognize her Booksmart. Uh, or wonder where Booksmart also she was uh, Loretta uh, in the series Justified. So, um I am going to uh, endorse two things. One of them is I think I've already done this once but I now have to double down on it. The second season of Succession. I wish we oh, hadn't yes. done I wish we hadn't done the nose about the first season of Succession. <laughs> I wish we could do it now. Hmm. Uh, and because it, it, what's happening in the series right now is remarkable. The writing is just uh, hilarious but also very important, particularly in terms of what's going on with media in, in the real world right now. This has a lot to say about that. Um, it's, uh, you could just start with the, with the second season too. I don't think – all you have to know is that everybody is a horrible person, uh, <laughs> that there are no nice people uh, in this particular world. But some of them try really hard. Some of them try really suffer. hard. suffer. Yes. And it is, and the the humorous elements are getting funnier and funnier. The other thing I will just recommend, since we were talking about books, is an author that I'm kind of starting to discover. And there's a lot to discover because he's written about twenty books. He's written, I think, nineteen books in the last twenty years, something like that. His name is Adrian McKinty. Uh, I read his book, The Cheen, this summer in one day. It's not a great book, but it's like a good pot boiler for the summer, and you will read it in one day. Now um, we are going through the audible version of his first novel ever, ever Dead I Well may be. Um, he's from Ireland, originally from the from Northern Ireland, I believe, originally, or at least he sets a lot of things in Northern Ireland. He's a terrific writer. I don't know how he, and these are, you know, a lot of these are kind of, they're not highbrow novels, let's just say, but they're very, very smart. And there's a lot of very smart stuff in them. I would really recommend starting with Dead, I Well May Be. And I'm going to be reading a lot more of it. The name again is Adrian McKinty. Dead, I Well May Be. Well, we'll t- I'll tell you more about it some other time. Thanks to Carolyn, to Tanisha, and to Irene.